Great to see all of you. You guys decided to be here tonight. You ready to go? Awesome. Uh, the four of us are going to go for it, and uh, the rest of you are in a summer um, dull sense. I'm not sure what's going on. Hey, um, so I had the privilege of uh, playing sports all throughout high school. I, I was a four-sport athlete in high school. The fourth sport was an unfortunate thing. I, I ran track, uh, which still to this day I regret. Um, but then I got the, the privilege of um, playing football in college. I was a quarterback, and just out of college, missing the game of football so much, um, I had the, the awesome opportunity to uh, coach freshman high school football at Francis Howell with uh, a good friend of mine who's uh, a covenant member here, John Locke. Now, I was the offensive coordinator, and for those of you guys that know me well, um, you know that I'm a bit on the edge, a bit crazy, uh, like to have a lot of fun, and so imagine me as an offensive coordinator if you can. Um, I, I was very silent and somber on the sideline. Um, I, I never spoke a word. No, I mean, I was like, I was on the field most times. I, uh, for those of you guys that know the game of football, we literally onside kicked about 50% of the time just for fun, you know? We were just, and, and if you don't know what that is, which sounds like most of you then, you don't understand, but it, it's a rare thing. Now, um, one day in coaching, um, I had this, I had this idea, um, at the end of a typical football practice or basketball practice or ballet practice or whatever kind of thing you practice, band practice, uh, at the end, there is uh, the, the, the calisthenics running conditioning time. And, um, and one day, uh, I was like, all right, uh, we're going to do something different today. We had this, there's no better way to describe him as a very short and um, stumpy uh, young lineman, Okay. Uh, he was uh, quite a large man, and, uh, and, and also, uh, for him in particular, wasn't the quickest of individuals. So I was like, look, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to send uh, Taylor um, out as far as he can run, and I'm going to throw him like the longest bomb I can possibly throw. And if Taylor catches it, uh, then we, we're not going to run at all. And, and if he doesn't, then we're going to run like, you know, triple and quadruple. And so, you know, everyone's like, all right, having no confidence at all in Taylor. But they're like, this will just be fun regardless. And so Taylor lines up like a wide receiver, and uh, the whole team is around. And, uh, and I, I say hike, and uh, he starts running. And I literally probably have to wait about 30 seconds until, like, just because of the pace. It, it, was, it was very slow, okay? So about 30 seconds later, uh, he's probably you know, 60, 65 yards away, and I just, like, I rear back, and I throw this thing, you know, and it, I, I will say it was a very nice spiral, I mean, the, the wind was kind of blowing in the air, the breeze was nice, and, um, and, and we're all watching, it's like slow-mo, you can picture it like in a movie, right, we're, we're watching this ball just float in the air, and just before it gets to Taylor, he, like, he trips a little bit, okay, and so instantly you can hear the gasp in all of uh, the, his teammates, but then at the very last second, he lays out for this ball, this, you know, this lineman guy lays out for this ball and comes down with it. I mean, in that moment, our record was like two and eight that year. And in that moment, we had literally won the Super Bowl. You know, like the whole team is jumping on top of him. I mean, they lift Taylor up about a fourth of the way to put him on their shoulders. I mean, it was just like tremendous excitement. Like it was it was unifying. It was unbelievable in that moment what had happened. And um, I, I guess what I realized so much about all of my athletic experience is, is coaches, um, they can try to, like, fix things about your 
for me, my, my throwing arm or my follow-through or uh, my pronate is a quarterback talk. Um, they can, you know, make me a better runner. They can do all of these things uh, to my form and my ability. But it's like, it's those moments with Taylor that, that make a team something more than just fixing or correction. Um, in other words, like, we can focus so much on behavior and miss altogether the thing that actually benefits us the most. And that's the heart of the issue. Um, I think even here at Matthias, a, a, a church that believes preaching the Bible is better than anything else and uh, teaching God's truth is way better than anything else. I think even our struggle is that. That we could watch this journey of the Israelites and see their demise, see their ignorance, see their ridiculousness, see their poor decisions, and then all of us just say, okay, so now let's fix our behavior in light of these idiots, but not really see the core issue, not really see what's really happening, not really see why 1.5 million people see the signs and miracles that they've seen and still are coming up short, disobedient, almost unacknowledging who God really is. And so on tonight, uh, I want to pray in power that God does a work in our hearts. Um, we're going to study an entire chapter in the Bible, uh, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 16. Uh, it's, it's very long. It's lengthy. And bread will start raining from heaven in this chapter. Um, and we've kind of we put it in the ducks here to, to give us a good, you know, symbolicness. So it should be fun. Um, I'm going to pray tonight that God doesn't fix our behavior, but that he changes our hearts. So if you're with me tonight in that prayer, I, I just, let's pray that together and let's watch what God does, all right? Um, God, I fully recognize right now that only you can do anything here tonight. Um, the crafty words of man will accomplish nothing, but your hand and your move and your spirit and your love and your grace can take these hearts, some distance, some near, and mold them around your son. And so, God, I pray right now in power, believing that these are more than just words that are being said, but believe that you're hearing these. I pray in power right now that you will change us, that you will affect us, that we will come uh, to worship you in your great and holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Open your Bibles or your phones or whatever you have as a resource to Exodus chapter 16. There are Bibles on the end of your uh, rows. It's not going to be on the screen tonight, so you're going to need uh, some kind of physical form of the, of the text to follow along, especially with the long nature uh, of the scripture, uh, that would be uh, amazing. Now, we've just seen um, last week um, these Israelites out in the desert find water. You remember 70 palm trees, right, and a bunch of springs. Uh, they've just parted. Uh, they've just seen God part the sea. Now they're on a massive voyage through the desert uh, without water for days. God provides it. And, uh, and now here there is a new issue that arises. So Let's begin in Exodus chapter 16. You'll see the subtitle, Bread from Heaven. <laughs> they set off from Elam, and all of the congregation of the, uh, the people of Israel came to the wilderness of, what's that? Sin. Funny enough, this isn't intentionally a play on words, though it really speaks true to what's going to happen here, right? Uh, the wilderness of sin. It, it's literally just called that. Uh, Key the map here for me if you can. Uh, I've highlighted this in red bold. Uh, so there's the wilderness of sin, okay? If you can't see that in the back, I'm sorry. But uh, it's large box. This is where they're at now. The green path 
shows the probable journey, okay? So, um, and the scripture says here in the middle of verse 1, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. In other words, it's now been a month since they left. So a lot has happened in 30 or 31 days. I think you'd agree with me. Verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, the scripture says, grumbled against who? Against Moses, and now who joins in the party, and Aaron in the, in the wilderness. And the people, verse 3 of Israel, said to them, would, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought, out, uh, brought us out to, into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. And now they say not with thirst, but they add with hunger. So again, they turn to Moses and Aaron. And they say it would, have better, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt than to have been delivered by God. They show again this very interesting chasm. We would have rather died next to the meat pots. And my guess is, by study, I'm not so sure there were a vast amount of meat pots. Have you ever found yourself in a a situation that was stretching you to the end of yourself, and then you started exaggerating about your previous um, experiences? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like all of a sudden they're just crafting these meat pots that were appearing for the the slaves in Egypt. I, I don't think there were many meat pots But all of a sudden, they start thinking to themselves again, with massive hunger beginning to rise, that, Moses, why did you bring us out here just to kill us now? The same verbiage that we've already seen, and they're complaining, they're grumbling. Well, here's what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, this is insane. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. (laughs) And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Well, a couple of phenomenal observations. Does God even in this moment address their grumbling? Does he? No. In his grace and in his mercy, though the people deserve wrath, God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do as if I haven't done enough. Now I'm going to, to stinking rain bread from heaven on your head, you know? Like, how crazy is this story of the Israelites? Like, just just imagine yourself right now, having gone through all of the things you've gone through, and now God tells Moses, I I know it seems crazy, but bread is going to come down from heaven. Have you ever asked yourself what you would pay to have been there, right? Like, if God ever said, all right, how much would you give to see bread come down from heaven, right? Have you ever played that that game before? Uh, Okay, maybe that's only, like, in pastor, like, (laughs) gatherings. So, how much would you pay to, you know see bread come down from heaven, you know? Oh, I'd give up my leather-bound Bible, you know? I mean, <clears throat> this is actually calfskin. Uh, God is showing a pattern that he has a people that he's chosen. He's already said, you're a people from my own possession. And the pattern that we're consistently seeing, I hope you're seeing this, is that God is relentless in mercy, If you're his kid, he is relentless in mercy. He will not stop. He pours out and pours out and pours out. Listen, even when it does not make sense. We'd all agree, right? These Israelites deserve what? I mean, they deserve every component of wrath. 
So the question then is, what is going on in their heart? What is causing them to look at at these unbelievable miracles over and over and over again and still grumble? What is happening in here? I think, and I'm going to make many observations as the night goes on, but I think a piece of the core of them is they are not yet satisfied by God alone. So far, they've been satisfied by God and redemption from slavery. They've been satisfied by God and providing water, by God and not killing them by opening the sea. You guys see what I'm saying? They haven't yet found satisfaction in just God. They've always needed God to do something, and then just for a brief moment of time, they'll worship him like we saw at the Song of the Sea. Or for a brief moment in time, they'll give thanks. God, thanks so much for not killing us back there. But they haven't found themselves yet satisfied just with the Lord. God, you are who you are. And so because of that, that's all I need. There always has to be an additive. And so the question about that observation is where is your heart at in your journey with God that always needs a God drug, something else, God plus. Their dissatisfaction creates a heart of grumbling. And the scripture says this in verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Interesting. On the sixth day now, I'm going to rain down twice as much of this bread. So Moses and Aaron, verse 6, said to all the people of Israel, at evening... You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Moses makes it very, very clear. Your grumbling is not against me. Oh, for believers to truly accept this truth. Why do we take so personally at times? people's dissatisfaction or unbelief about the Lord. Like somehow it were or was an attack against us personally. Listen, there is such freedom in proclaiming the truth of God and living in light of that truth of God. And whether people accept or reject, I get to continue to love. I'm not going to be their judge in the end or now anyway. And so the opportunity you and I have in the power of God is, listen, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting the truth of the Lord. It's the Lord's truth. I just am the communicator of it. I'm the, I'm the one in this setting that, that gets to show you how deeply I believe it. I feel like a huge piece of just our missional living or evangelism or just simply our sharing of our faith is, is we're afraid of us being rejected. Listen, they ain't rejecting you ever. It may feel like it. It may get personal. Your emotions may get involved, but they are rejecting the Lord. And that's what Moses makes clear. You're not rejecting me, my friends. I know I'm leading this in the fleshly standpoint, but they are in full rejection of God. Are we together? Does that make sense? Wonderful. And in the morning, you're going to see this is what the Lord is doing. And Moses said, look at this, uh, verse 8. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, the scripture says, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation, all of them, 1.5-ish million of them, 
of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. This, this does not make any sense to me. This constant rhetoric of he's heard your grumbling. Uh, we've touched on it uh, briefly uh, throughout this whole journey, but I want to really touch on it now. I was sharing with a group of pastors this morning. Um, I've had the privilege of just sharing with some, some church planters on Wednesday mornings here a couple times. And, and I was just sharing with them, listen, as pastors, and I was just talking pastor, I was like, listen, there, there's so much opportunity to complain. I was like, every single one of us right now, and these are all church planters, every single one of us have a story or reason of why it's tough or why it's hard, of why pastoring this. But I was like, can we just for a second understand how much of a blessing it is to be called to do this for a life? And many people ask me so much, like, Mark, why do you wake up so early? I get to, I get to wake up early. Like, I, I am so privileged to join alongside an amazing team of people to be a part of pastoring a church. Are you kidding me? Like, yeah, is it chaos? Yeah, is it hard? Of course, but it's all a blessing because that's what the Lord is doing. Listen, you can either complain about everything or recognize that your whole life is grace. You guys see what I'm saying? I'm tired of being so bombarded constantly by negativity, by pessimism, and by complainers. You can find anything to complain about in the greatest of situations. And some of you are straight pros, aren't you? Like some of you husbands and wives right now are nudging each other, right? And complaining even then, right? You're complaining about the complainer, you know. I guess I am too, right? But the beauty is seeing all of this as grace. That's another core issue. At the heart of these Israelites is they are not seeing or understanding that every measure, every breath that they're taking is grace. They do not deserve to breathe. And yet God has graced them with one more breath. How much more fun is it to live like that? How much more fun is it to believe that you don't deserve anything but that God has been merciful and gracious? You guys see what I'm saying? We don't deserve anything. These Israelites don't deserve anything, let alone bread from heaven. It's crazy. And as soon, verse 10, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Why does he show up? The constant reminder to them, in this case, even in the Shekinah glory, or, or, or more simply, just the fullness of, his, of himself. I'm near, I'm here, I'm with you. I know I showed myself back at the, in the pillar of cloud and smoke and of fire. I know I did all of that, and, and I know you guys have been hearing from Moses, but I'm still here. I'm present. No need to be afraid. Trust me. God in his mercy shows himself. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. Men, right? Like this, this is a great moment in the scripture, right? In the moment you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. This is like the best combination of food ever. Bread and meat, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but certainly meat and bread is a great combo. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord your God. I'm going to bring meat, I'm going to make it rain with bread, and then you shall know. But the question is, will they, or better, shall they? Are these prophetic words, or almost like a, a pleading from the Lord, 
Verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. <laughs> uh, now, I'm no, uh, what's the proper term? Hunter? Uh, I'm, I'm no hunter. <laughs> I've never shot anything in my life, okay? The closest thing I ever got, I've told you guys a story before. I was created this group in third grade called the Rabbit Busters. We had a, a rabbit population problem on, in my neighborhood, and so we would take baseballs and throw them at, um, at rabbits in my neighborhood. Um, but be encouraged, we never literally killed one rabbit. Um, it all ended when I hit a small child, okay? Like, my aim was off, seriously, like a four-year-old kid went down. Anyway, that was really the closest thing I've had to a casualty. So I've never killed, shot anything. But many of you guys have hunted before. You've hunted deer, turkey. Any, any hunters of quail? Okay, have any of you guys hunted? Okay, we have a hunter of quail. All right, a couple. A quail is a, is a small winged bird, okay? Um, and in Egypt, um, there was a natural migration pattern of the quail over the land, and in this case, over the wilderness. And so, um, though in this case it was in mass proportion, uh, quail fly at night, and then often are too weary in the morning, and so literally you can catch quail uh, with your hands. Like, that's part of the, the hunting process. So what Moses is saying is, all of a sudden, there's going to be quail everywhere, and that, you know, brings to mind all kinds of other things about what comes with quail. But in verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. Verse 14, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, look at this, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Which is a really fair question. Uh, they, they come outside, there's quail in this like frosty, you know, snow, you know, kind of straight from the Frozen movie kind of look, you know, I mean, just this massive collection of a bread-like substance. Uh, you've probably never heard this before, but do you, do you know what manna means? What is it? That's what it means. C- creative name giving here, right? What is it? Let's call it manna, right? That's literally what manna means. What is it, Okay. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, look at this. It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Verse 16. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer. Okay, quick pause. Uh, This is a mason jar. um, And this is not manna, okay? Uh, We know exactly what this is. Uh, this is a French bread roll, okay? But a, an omer, um, by all calculations, is about a half of a gallon. Now, an omer is not a precise measure of uh, measuring. Um, in other words, there's different times in the scripture that it's used. And if you do uh, just your, a little bit of history research, you know that it kind of changes its proportion. In this case, it's about a half of a gallon, which just so happens to be this message or half of a gallon. So the command was, you're going to go out with your mason jars, and you're going to gather an omer of this, uh, of this manna, of this fine, frost-like bread substance, okay? So let's look at how this gathering will take place. You're going to gather an omer, middle of verse 16, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent, okay? So you got X amount of people in your tent, so... Now, based on that number, seems very mathematical. And the people, verse 17, of Israel did so. Of course they did. 
This is what I would call easy obedience, as if there's such a thing. Easy obedience. They're hungry. They've grumbled. God has provided, and he says, go get it. They still have to go get it. Okay, God didn't say, open your mouths, lay on the ground, and I'm going to provide you manna. And every fourth piece of bread that goes in your mouth, then will come Mountain Dew. You know, like, he, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, sit back in your lounger. So they do have to do something. They do have to obey. But I think you'd agree with me, this is easy obedience. We're in desperate need. God's provided. Go get it. Okay, no problem. I'm starving. Yes, of course I will. Gather as each as much as, uh, verse 18, okay, they gathered some more, some less, verse uh, 17 says, verse 18, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever uh, granted much had nothing left over, and whoever granted little had no lack. So everyone was provided for, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. And this is some of your favorite commands, right? Um, how many of you guys like mac and cheese? Okay, great. Um, <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to try to be as uh, PC as I possibly can here, but uh, I'm a big fan of just straight old traditional mac and cheese, you know, high caloric intake, um, lots of cheese, lots of mac. I like my mac and cheese runner, uh, runny. Anyone else? Like, I like lots of milk, you know, I'll throw some whatever. Like, I just, and so... Um, one time I had some organic mac and cheese. And listen, I know there... And I literally felt like I was, I was not eating cheese or mac at all, you know? Um, but the worst part about mac and cheese is the day after. No matter how good it is, organic or not, like if you like leftover mac and cheese, seriously, like after this is over, we will pray for you. It's horrible, isn't it? Does anyone really like it? By raise of hand. All right. One. Seriously? Of all people. Come on. Now, there, there are certain leftovers that are unbelievable. Fried chicken, anybody? It does not matter. Cold, hot, next day fried chicken? Come on now. Next day KFC fried chicken. Right. Right. Come on. Everyone's getting a little excited. Um. <laughs> but Moses says, no leftovers. Moses says, no leftovers. Zero will be left over, which, again, many of you are like, so is God commanding gluttony? No, the scripture's already said he's testing them. Eat it all. I'm providing for you. Don't leave any left, and then look what happens. Uh, verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. The they there means they. That means a whole bunch of them. Okay, easy obedience, then quick disobedience. Which proves, listen, which proves the heart of the initial obedience. Agree? See what I'm saying? Easy obedience, of course. Yes, let's go gather. Then what happens? Disobey. Well, look what God does. Um, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. And look what happens. It bred worms and stank. Okay? So God's like, you want to leave some of that left over? All right. I'm going to show you what happens when you disobey. And the scripture says at the end of all this, and Moses was angry with them. We've uh, talked about Moses' anger a couple different times. Wouldn't you be? 
We've talked about whether it's righteous anger or just frustration. Um, I believe Moses in his heart, again, gets to this place where he is longing to watch the core of these people see that God is providing for their every need. And he's watching them miss the very God that I believe he's grown so deeply in love with. And if there isn't some part of you, as you watch people in their disdain of God, if there isn't a part of you that's like, I just, I long for you to see God as I see God, the provider of everything that I need. I think that's the core of Moses' anger. So morning by morning, Scripture says in verse 21, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So God takes care of it. Now, I want to describe this manna to you just a little bit so we understand. Uh, fine like frost, um, it, it was seed-like, very, very small even. I, I think some of us imagine like wonder loaves dropping from heaven, you know, uh, with, the, with the ties around it, you know. And they're like catching them, you know. No, I, this is a very, very fine thing that could be cooked, laid out. I mean, there were different ways to prepare the manna. It was very difficult for them to gather it. So though it was easy obedience, at the end of the day, it was actually difficult to gather. In fact, um, if you look at some of the research of how this could potentially have happened, they would have literally had to scoop it up. Um, Now, I did as much much reading as I could on this just to understand, but I found a couple uh, Egyptian and then a couple Jewish historians that, that would say that based on legend, okay, not scripture, but based on legend, um, there would even, like the miracle of God in providing the manna was even so deep that there was not any dust from the desert floor in the manna. So like though they had to be careful, as they like swept it up and gathered it in, uh, in an omer, there was literally no dust from the desert floor that it was falling on, okay? So it wasn't, just get in your mind, it wasn't, you know, loaves of bread or, you know, droplets of yeast falling from the ground. It was a very seed-like, fine, bread-like substance. We'll see more of that. Verse 27, one of my favorite passages in this whole thing. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Hold on. Remember what God said? On the sixth day, I'm going to do what? I'm going to provide double. So that on the sixth day, you gather. So on the seventh day, you don't have to. But what happens? On the seventh day, some people still go out. Why? Overindulgence. Taking the beauty of what God's providing and never being satisfied and always wanting more. It's one thing to rest in the provision of God, and it's another thing to indulge in it or never be satisfied in it, that you always have to work for more. This starts a principle. Look at what verse 28 says. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Hello, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread. For two days, remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people people rested on the seventh day. Now, this is crazy scriptural stuff here. Do you guys understand? The Ten Commandments are coming in a couple chapters. Exodus 20, they're coming, right? We're going to see them, right? We're going to 
We're going to see the stones and see all the law be broken down. Well, the Sabbath is one of those Ten Commandments. Have you ever seen the institution of the Sabbath pre-Ten Commandments? Have you ever seen that in the text before? Well, God institutes it in creation. He creates in six and rests on the seventh, creating the six and one rhythm or pattern to life. But here, God creates the rhythm of the Sabbath even before he commands it in Exodus 20. And my question is why? And why does he even term it the Sabbath? Because he has to teach slaves how to rest. In Egypt, there was zero cultural rhythm of rest. Zero. Okay? And I mean cultural. That means Pharaoh. The understanding of rest looked very, very different than it did in this case for the Israelites. They were slaves working hard. Many of them working to literal death. And God now, listen, God brings them in the, de- in the desert to teach slaves how to rest. He doesn't have to, but in his mercy, he says, listen, I want to look out for you so much. I want to love you so much. I want to care for your heart so much. On the sixth day, gather double, so on the seventh day, you, you can just believe Cease and celebrate and remember you're not slaves anymore. And if you don't go out and gather on the seventh day, I've already provided for you. You can rest in my work, in other words. He has to teach slaves how to rest. Well, the scripture says in Romans and many other places, my friends, that we are born in as slaves to sin. One of the amazing graces that God gives us is taking you and I who used to be slaves to sin and teach us how to rest in his finished work. There is no difference. Taking our hearts and saying, listen, you don't have to go out and gather more when all I need you to do is rest in my saving work. You cannot put yourself on the cross If you do, it will be meaningless in comparison to what my son has already done. God begins a pattern of teaching in the scripture and for you and I, slaves, how to rest. So the question is, how's the teaching going for you? Are you learning that? Are you in your heart really believing that there is nothing that you can do in your works to impress God so much that he would say, you know what, for you I'm going to make an exception. All the rest of these people need Jesus, but you, you're so incredibly holy. I mean, more than the rest. You're so insanely obedient. You follow my law to a T. All the rest of these people, they need the cross. You, oh no, you're the star student, A+. Not a one of us, every single one of us, desperately needing the grace and the rest that comes in the person of Christ. 
all written out of this slave driving mentality. You got to do more. You got to work harder. You got to produce. If you don't, you're not going to measure up. And listen, all these things, for those of us that have spent some time in the church, are are great things to communicate. We talk about non-works-based righteousness all the time. It's easy to come and roll off the tongue, but my friends, it's way different to believe that our righteousness is as filthy rags in terms of the great sacrifice of Christ. Let's take this as a phenomenal example of what God does. I want to bless you. Rest in my son. Rest in his work. And then guess what? You'll live more free. Not believing that your works don't matter, but believing that your works don't save you, which is certainly the case. So look what happens here. The people, verse 30 says, rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. They were incredibly creative. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Listen, I I want you guys to understand. He doesn't just give them like this white, frosty, tasteless junk. God gives them honey. Anybody else? Like, I'm sorry, and I know some of you guys don't like some honey. I might even eat organic honey, you know? I mean, honey is unbelievable. Like Cheerios, lame. Honey Nut Cheerios, golden. <laughs> right? Have you ever had a Cheerio and then instantly had a Honey Nut Cheerio? It's, like, it's life-changing. Like, what is that? They, like, God has sprinkled something magical on these little, you know, rings. So God doesn't just provide these little seeds or this collection of bread. He gives them something that, that tastes wonderful. Meat that will enhance the diet. God is relentless in his grace. I know many of you guys get like the the thought of vanilla wafers in your mind here, like wafers made with honey. Verse 32, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Hello, Q New Testament. Did you guys know that in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about how there was an omer of manna that was kept and eventually put in the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that eventually carried God's laws, the thing that eventually David built a temple around to essentially house the presence of God. So Moses commands here, based on the Lord, listen, take this and remember this. Remember how this bread provided. Remember what this bread represents. Remember that though you were slaves, God provided a way out, and then he gave you not just a way out, but every means of sustenance that you will ever need. As the Lord, verse 34, uh, commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony of the people. And here's a huge piece of this whole story, verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna. What's the next word? Forty years and we grumble about our lack of options you know how do you teach your kids that that they're growing up in a setting in a culture even in our setting the poorest of the poor still provided for so much 40 years of this 
And, and so the one side says, man, like they had to be getting tremendously tired of that. But the other side, and my heart right now, says 40 years of relentless provision and mercy by God. And granted, this is going to be 40 years worth as they're wandering in the wilderness, complaining, building golden calves, doing all kinds of stupid things. And what does God say? You're my people. I'm going to continue to provide. I'm going to continue to love. I'm going to continue to be gracious. The people of Israel, verse 35, ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer, this is such a random verse 36. And Omer is the 10th part of, a, of an ephah. Thank you so much, Moses. Like now. It's like, oh yeah, and by the way. Let me explain an Omer. If we sit back, all of us, right now. Hey, let's go to work right now. Is that cool? Can we go to work? All right. If we sit back, all of us, and we learn from behavior, what would be some things that we should not do? If we just like we're fixing behavior right now, if this is a moment of interaction. If we were just fixing behavior, what, what are some things that we should do? What's that? Okay, so no grumbling. Grumbling is bad, okay? What else? Okay, no gossip, for sure. The murmuring, the grumbling. No fighting. Yes, that's just a good rule for life, okay? What else? Any, anything else? Like, what, what are some other life lessons from this? What's that? Be grateful, for sure. Trusting God. All of these things, right? If we are to take this text and just say, all right, God, so let's learn from the Israelites. Let's get our whiteboard out. Here's the things that we're not going to do in response to that. That's one approach. The other approach is to understand that at the core, the heart, the very being of these people, the thing they're struggling with the most is I think the thing that we struggle with, and I would not even say the most, but it's like right in front of our face. And it's the plain and simple fact, does God really love us or not? Isn't that the core issue? And, and yes, we could say added in that is faith and trust and all those things 100%. But are you watching a generation that really believes that God loves them? Are you watching a group of people that are trusting so much that God is truly loving? And so because of that, they just submit and surrender and believe and celebrate in the provision why are you struggling to believe that God loves you? Have there been things that have happened in your life by authority figures, by church members, by folks that you've journeyed with that have caused you to take the things in the flesh and then put those on the Lord? Because of this, then God must not be loving all of us have a lot of things to grumble about, don't we? The list is extensive, isn't it? Like just thinking about it, some of you already have a scrowl on your face. You're like, man, you know, I got so much to complain about. Like no one even understands. 
I see your grumbling, and let me raise you the love of the Lord. The provision of God. The relentless grace that God has provided us. For me, the issue isn't fixing our behavior so that we're not like the Israelites. For me, the issue from this text is believing that God really loves us. That he will provide relentlessly. That he will be gracious. That he will guide us. That he'll give us everything we need. And you're like, Mark, but what about the the man that was stoned in Acts 7? Mark, what about the the guy who was killed because of his faith? Mark, what about the guy that died of cancer? Mark, all of these things, right, that we lump into the category of, Mark, how does that show how God loves? Let me tell you, though death may may seem imminent or may seem even so real, what, what is the promise of the cross? What is the promise of an empty tomb? We live. Yes, some of us in this room will die of cancer. Some of us have had close ones that have died of cancer. And what's the promise of the cross? In Christ, you live. Was Stephen stoned to death? Yes, and in Christ, he lives. Does God relentlessly provide? Is he relentlessly gracious? Is he relentlessly loving or not? God, please help us believe that. And it's in that belief that all of a sudden we'll find ourselves... God, we know that you will provide. God, we trust in our situation or as a community that you're going to guide and direct us. God, we believe. You see, we become reliant on the Lord and not our own abilities. We truly find ourselves, please hear this, resting in him and nothing else. So it seems appropriate tonight to have an opportunity for us um, to celebrate with this awesome meal of remembrance. And Omer would collect all of this bread and then it would be poured out of the jar and then family members, right, in the tent, they, they would come up and eat of it. And they would say, all right, like, let's, let's now partake in this. And then is it interestingly, is it interesting to anyone else That years and years and years later, of all of the things that could have been symbolic, what does Jesus do? He takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says what? This is my body which is broken for you. The means of provision in the desert now will be the means of remembrance of how you really find rest. The means of celebration in the wilderness will now be the opportunity for people in Christ for years and years and years and years until he comes back to come up and for us tonight, pull a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup and just say, God, thank you for providing us everything we need. God, help me believe that you love me. Help me believe that the sacrifice of your son is enough for me to believe that you love me. God, teach me as a slave who was once burdened with sin, that I can rest in you now as a slave to righteousness. So tonight, church, let's come around this table. Let's rest together in the cross of Christ in an empty tomb. And let's pray 
that God will help us believe that he loves us relentlessly. Respond when you're ready, church.